You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Kluster. Joining me today to discuss one of the nerdier shows you can watch are Lori Norris and Christina Bieber-Lake. Say hello, ladies. Hi. Hello, and we are some of the more nerdier people on the CFP. <laughs> that is quite true, uh, Christina. I feel like you and I are just like, we are the sci-fi, we're the sci-fi people. Uh, we are. And I feel like this show kind of really falls in with that. Today, we're going to be talking about the first two seasons of the Apple Plus series Mythic Quest, which I personally think is much better than Ted Lasso. Come at me, haters. But before I jump into the summary of the series, I think, um, why don't we introduce ourselves and discuss what are some of y'all's personal experiences you have with video games? When, what did you first play? Do you play any now? Have you played any games that you would consider a masterpiece, a work of art, the way Mythic Quest is portrayed? What about you, Lori? So I, I'm Lori Norris. I am the office manager at the English department at UGA. And uh, my experience in video games is um, mostly limited to forcing people to play them so I can watch. Um, like, I bought a PS2 a hundred years ago because it was a smart financial decision because I would get a DVD player and I could play Simpsons Road Rage, which I was really good at because you didn't have to, you got points for breaking things and that's all I could do. And then I would sit around and watch my friends play Halo, but I never had really good control over the, I, I just don't enjoy the haptic experience of the controller. And more recently I forced my former roommate, um, to buy Death Stranding so I could watch it because it features so many of my favorite artists and it was so weird. So that's my experience of games. You know, or you could just watch a streamer play. That's kind of a thing now. You could just like, you could just like subscribe to Twitch and watch somebody else play. Oh, it's, it's a so total much, thing now. Yeah, it, 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 now it is, but it's so much more fun to manipulate other people into doing what I want. I, I reserve Twitch for watching drag shows during pandemics. All right, fair. What about you, Christina? What are some of your one of your video game experiences? Well, I'm uh, Christina Bieber Lake. I teach at Wheaton College English, and uh, I am the Gen Xer of the bunch as well. Here, this is a Mythic Quest is a great show about generations too, and and you know that's one thing that's that's really cool about it. So I hope we'll get into that today as well. But I started playing video games in the arcade where you had to play you know pay a quarter to play video games before the computers were personal computers where we had them at home and then i was also the generation that begged their parents to buy us atari 
we finally successfully convinced them to buy us Atari. And I played uh, Circus Atari was my favorite game of, at that time when I was, um, you know, 11 years old, 12 years old. And then um, things just obviously got a lot better with the gaming and uh, more interesting, more involved rather than just space invaders and asteroids and things like that. Then uh, was invented well, when I was in grad school. Um, civilization, you know, the strategy games that are like, yes. uh, yeah, that's when I really got sucked in because I remember, well, I got sucked in in college too, but I had to force myself not to play them. I mean, you probably don't remember there was this game called Larn. It literally was like on the green Macintosh, you know, the green and black screen. And it was just like a, a dungeon and dragons type of game. And you go down and there, but there's no graphics. If you oh, so it was a, a, a text-based game. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You, you run into a giant ant. It was literally at a big A, you know, and, but it was still compelling because, I mean, you didn't actually physically run into it, but you saw that there was a giant ant and you had to, you know, negotiate. And that's all I remember about, about it, but I had to stop myself from playing it. I also played, you know, Contra on the, the um, I guess it was a, not Xbox, but the, before that maybe PS2. That was in the in the basement of our was in the basement of our college, my my dining hall. And so, but then when I got into grad school, then it was like civilization, and that's when I knew I could really sink into a deep hole if I wasn't careful. So I'm at my friend's apartment. He's a high school teacher. I'm in grad school, and <clears throat> he sets me up on this game, and I literally stay up all night playing it, which I don't do. I don't do all nighters. <laughs> but it's like you put. You put return and then you wait for the machine to answer, you know, and do its moves. And then you literally just get so sucked in, you can't stop. So he comes out the, of his bedroom the next day and sees me still there. And he, instead of going, oh, my gosh, you're still up. He says, yeah, you're still up. <laughs> I was like, oh, so, so that's, uh, I still have a temptation to do games like that, but I have to kind of force myself to stop well, I have played many games of Civilization. I, um, so I will say I have played video games, I guess, most of my life in the sense that, you know, my brother, who's three years older than me, got a Nintendo, and then he got a Super Nintendo, and then we got uh, the N64. And so my family, uh, back in the day, we were Nintendo people, because you kind of like some people are Coke people, some people are Pepsi people. You were either in a Nintendo family or a Sega family, and we are a Nintendo family. And I was never very good at video games, partly because I'm a bit of a wuss and I'm always just petrified of dying with my little guy. Um, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I have always, I've always really kind of preferred, um, you know, I love, I love Mario Kart, anything, you know, regular Mario games. I'm, I always really love. The first game that I, I can play where I can remember, like, oh, like, this is a game and this is important. Like, I could feel it when I was looking at it. Is I have a very clear memory of my brother sitting, watching my brother, because I watched him play a lot of video games. Watching my brother play Ocarina, uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And I watched him play a lot of video games because the video game, like, the machine was in the living room and we always had a rule in our house that you can't kick somebody out of the living room because it's public space. So you can say, okay, well, you have to stop annoying mm -hmm. us and you can sit on the couch, but you can't, and you don't really talk about it, but you can like hang out with me and my friends as long as you're quiet on the couch. And so I watched <laughs> them play video games so much by doing that. 
And I, the most recent one I would say that I fell in love with is Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. I'm still a Nintendo person, mainly because Nintendo has always been a little more family friendly in terms of not being like super hardcore and dark and that kind of stuff. And I have memories of when World of Warcraft came out because my brother used to come over to my apartment and play for hours and hours and hours. And yeah, I never, myself, I, I, I never got into those ones, those online, massive online role, because I knew that it would be the end for me. Well, you know. and so the games I actually play now, um, I'll, I play Zelda and that kind of thing. But if I'm going to sit down and really play a game, I tend to really love playing city builders. But I was never very, I was never super great at like Civ because I would, I would always like, why are these other people attacking me? Why can't they just let me build my libraries and my perfect yeah. civilization? Why do they want to attack me? I don't want to build a dang spearman. Um, yeah. And let's, so let's, let's just talk about something about that for just a second because okay. it's so interesting that in the show, right, there is some gendered play styles. Like yes. with Poppy being the one who wants to have the shovel in the game and make it a little bit more like Minecraft in some ways. Yeah. Um, I also prefer like cooperative games, like mm -hmm. the, when we would play like, um, uh, gosh, I got it was Xbox or whatever, but we played Lord of the Rings where one person could be Legolas and, you know, you work together against the enemy. And it's so interesting, you know, that I just never got into that kind of like, I want to kill other people or like take over the world kind of stuff. I would completely agree. And Christina, if you kind of like city builders, I'll do one recommendation game for you now, as opposed to doing on the passing on, which is, there is a uh, game called Frostpunk, and it is, I think it would probably be right up your alley. So it's, it is a uh, post-dystopian game where you're basically a city manager. And so you're not having to kill anyone. Basically, it's you against nature, and you're having to pass laws to create economy, um, bring food in, because it's getting colder and colder. So you're kind of in this, like, post-nuclear winter and you're having to like bring in cool. people to like keep everybody warm and like go hunting and manage people's like emotions and expectations and pass rules and like I love it and I can play it for hours and hours and hours and I have. But that sounds awesome. You should look at it. It's not that expensive on Steam if you want to get it. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully for our audience that has sufficiently uh, showed off some of our nerd cred. So um I'll jump into our summary about Mythic Quest. Mythic Quest is a workplace, uh, I would say dramedy. I think it probably falls under that dramedy middle category that kind of combines The Office with Silicon Valley. The show follows a gaming company that operates an MMORPG, which stands for Massively Multiplayer Online Role Playing Game, which is clearly based on the real world game, World of Warcraft. And the show uh, starts with our creative director, Ian Graham and Poppy Lee, who is our lead engineer, as well as a lot of other upper management. You have Brad, who's uh, head of finance. You have David, who is the actual executive producer, but is kind of a wuss, and so he lets everyone boss him around. There's Joe, the assistant. You have our testers. You have our um, Saturn award-winning science fiction author, C.W., Longbottom, which is just the best fake name in the world. Um, and, it, <laughs> and it really starts with the show's kind of launch of the new expansion. And immediately we see the differences within our main characters, Ian or Ian. His name's Ian, but he tries to be really fancy and calls himself Ian. Ian 
and Poppy. Poppy is kind of ready to go. Poppy is much more about like the technical aspects. Ian is all about noodling, 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 because to him, there's nothing more important than the game. Um, through season two, Poppy and Ian, Poppy actually becomes co-creative director with Ian, and they do the very typical arguing, sparring, and fighting throughout the first season because neither one of them wants to admit that they need the other one for their creative process. Um, this is a show I think that also really emphasizes that art is always best when it bumps up against restriction and if it bumps up against somebody who's willing to criticize it. Because both of them in the second season are having people who are just like, yes, anything you want. They're just sucking up to them. And they know that their product isn't as good as it would be with someone who was really being critical to them and was really seeing it for what it was. Um, but towards the end, they realize that it's really time for them to move on. As CW says... It's all grown up and legal now, and there are no more stories to write about this game. The show deals with the kind of some of the ugly aspects of gamer culture, uh, sexism, trolling, the absolute weirdness that is like streaming culture. Uh, Mythic Quest depicts the struggle between art and commerce and how both are needed to sustain any piece of art meant for mass consumption. And there are multiple episodes that provide either a time jump or focus on character backstories, which help keep our characters feeling incredibly human. Um, most people generally consider the first, the best episode of the first season to be the episode Dark Quiet Death, where they follow a video game company from the 1990s. One of my favorite episodes, I think one of the favorite episodes for most of our panel, is the is a pandemic episode that they did because... I want to say they the last episode of the first season of Mythic Quest aired like mid-February 2020, and their newest expansion was going to be a virus called Blood Ocean. <laughs> and then we're going to put the virus in the game, and then it was going to have to be a thing that characters were, or the players were going to have to deal with. And then like two months later, they, they do this pandemic episode where... Uh, they're like, crap, we probably, like, the characters in the show are like, we really apologize for having a uh, expansion that's a worldwide virus right when an actual worldwide virus is happening. And so that's, that, it's a very fun episode to talk about the isolation of working from home and then kind of the humor of, like, every single interaction of your life being with someone with in a Zoom head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the like, best it just, it just needs to be said the best part of that is when carol is just like i got children at home i got children at work <laughs> no dude, she's so, like they changed math you yeah know, they, they changed math, change math. Yeah, and that happened to me too with my son i'm like what is this what is he doing what is this i have no i cannot do this thank god my my husband could figure it out because i had no idea well i'm sure that if she, if he was like oh they're making me write a paper on jane Eyre, you would have been like all over that Christina. oh yeah well, of course but the, the the new math i was like yeah but yeah i felt exactly like carol did in that scene i was like they changed it oh see i like i get i get carol like carol's my girl i get i get you carol i work in an office but of that episode, which I think might be one of the best episodes of television I've watched in the last 10 years. Me too. Me too. It's it's the poppy story that yes. breaks my heart and puts it all back together again. It is so brilliantly done. 
makes jokes and jokes and jokes and relies on this really awkward structure that we're that we were all struggling with, like yes. an actual mechanism. And it advances the two characters, the relationship between Ayn and Poppy in yeah. a way that could not have been possible in a normal episode of so the show. True. That is very well said. And it was so economical, like 27 minute episode, right? And it was funny from beginning to end, but also had that incredibly intense hug between the two of them. Oh my she's gosh, depressed. Yeah. That was just, that was great TV. I mean, I was crying and then laughing and cheering at the end when they did the, what did they call that? The Rube thing, you know, the, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the Rube Goldberg uh, machine. Uh, the Rube Goldberg machine. I was cheering. Yeah, I was just, it was, uh, it was excellent TV. I mean, it's just. Well, and I think the thing that, one of the things that was so funny about that to me is it came out so early in the pandemic. Like a lot of people like, oh, we're doing a pandemic episode after like everybody's already been isolated for nine months and it's like a year and a half later and it's like, we're doing our pandemic episode. Like, oh, this came out right when people were still trying to like all be in this together. Like it oh, came so out I didn't like know that. I didn't know when it came out that I admire it even more, you know? So, like, they all actually were actually at home. Like, this wasn't a thing of, like, they had to do, like, do a lot of filming on sets. Like, they yeah. were actually at home doing this. Um, and I love that, for this particular story, I love that one, the, like, because my, my, my job immediately went online, and I'm, guess, and I'm guessing y'all did, too. But so much of my job is talking on Microsoft Teams or chatting on Microsoft Teams and sometimes I have to have it on, my the camera on, sometimes not. And be like, oh, crap, I have to go take a shower because I haven't showered in three days. Like, that was a very yeah, okay for yeah. me. Because, like, well, who's right. going to see me? Why do I need a shower? Why do I need to do all this yeah. stuff? And the and thing the is, like, thing, yeah. yeah. With Poppy and her bra, when he when uh, Ian comes on without a shirt, and she's like, "Well, I'm taking off my bra." I was laughing. Well, so yeah, if he hard. gets to be naked, yeah. why do I have to wear this bra? So and cool. David I love is her just accent too. <laughs> oh, her accent is so great. And David is just like, "Oh my!" Is like these all oh, these hurting cats. This is a business meeting. It's not yeah. too much to ask. And it's kind of like everybody's right in that moment. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes so. Well, Great TV. It was very good TV. I we can kind of jump in from there. I know we kind of all had certain characters we wanted to talk about, but I'm figuring we're just going to all talk about all of them, so that'll be fine. Um, my favorite of all the characters, um, not just the female, but all of them. I love Poppy so much. She may be my favorite, one of my favorite TV characters of all time. And yeah, I think part of it is. Because I feel like I genuinely would admire her if she were a real person. And part of the reason is that I love her I hear so, that. so much is she does not have a single solitary ounce in her whole body of imposter syndrome. Like she is. Oh, a, that's well said. She is so talented at the technical aspects. Like there are definitely flaws she has. She's not a very good leader. She is mm-hmm. not a very great. Like direct supervisor of like there's things that Poppy is not good at and one Mm -hmm. I love that the show allows her to not be good at that to be like it is enough for her to be this amazing technical person Mm -hmm. that it is actually more realistic that she has these technical abilities and isn't amazing at all this other stuff too right like that actually feels more real yeah and as somebody who, at least for all, you know, I've been doing my job long enough, they don't necessarily have it now. But when I got my new job as a boss, 
um, as a manager, I constantly struggled with imposters and are like, well, you know, I don't, do I know? And like, I just, I love seeing a female character who has just not an ounce of it, not a shred. She knows her technical worth. She knows what yeah, she not knows. Only that, that's a male's male world, right? Yeah. And that's in this male world. And all, yeah. of, and the other thing is all of the men completely 100% respect her for it. Yeah, they totally do. And, 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 and she's not depicted as an anomaly, although people, know that it is anomalous right because the show has normalized the presence of women mm-hmm. including as in the tester role right like which you would just assume it's a guy role and and i you know i should i should have said earlier that that my engagement with video games now is largely to keep my son from playing them all the time right <laughs> you know? so it's like it would have been a, a no-brainer for them to put men into that role but instead they chose two women and and uh, and normalizing the fact of them them being there right Yes. Well, and so I think especially like you have the you have the episode in the second season where Poppy's ha- do, giving like the award for women in gaming. Right. And so you kind of have like all of our yeah. characters really trying or all of our main female characters really trying to do something in that episode. Like Poppy is trying to give the speech that she really doesn't want to do. Partly because she's like, yeah. I just want to do technical stuff. I don't want to be. Yeah, she's not a yeah, public. She's like, I don't want to be a symbol. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know. Which is, and that's the thing, that's completely okay for her to feel. Like, I think a lot of times we do have this attitude of, like, if one person is really great and is in a slightly anomalous role for one of, for them, that we're like, you must be this incredible thing for everybody to look up to. And she's like, ah, no, I just kind of want to do my job, guys. You know? Exactly, yeah. It's a very real thing. Um, but in that episode, she's struggling with that. She does actually get... I love how she's like, you know, she basically manipulates David into giving what her want and I into giving what her water want. And then Ian's like, oh, she, she inspired us. And da- and he was like, no, she manipulated us. And I'm like, what's the difference? What's the difference? Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's, that, that, that's a deep, that's a cold cut, but it's kind of true. <laughs> and then you have Joe, like in that episode, really working with the testers with Dana and Rachel. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to come up with something. Um, oh, so the, goat, I, the goat episode where they're trying to develop the goat. Yeah, the brown yeah. goat. Yeah. And I think, Gross. again, like that shows Dana and Rachel's character really well, who are our testers. Um, okay, yeah. Speaking as a feminist, I was a little disappointed that I felt like the show felt like it had to cast them as lesbians, you know. Uh, that was disappointing to me because of the stereotype of that. Like, it's, you know, w- what we can't conceive of is sort of um, typical women being, yeah, straight, you know, right? Like regular straight women that. wanting to yeah. be Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was disappointed in that. And again, I understand there's a super tight line, right, in between comedy stereotypes and just like you have to have some stereotypes to make comedy work, right? So, so I, I understand that. I was just saying, I was just a little disappointed about that. But. Well, I think so. Ashley Birch, who plays the character of Dana. So what I think that they have this one amazing, like super kind of like thing that I just, I could not believe. And it was so funny. So uh, no, uh, Ashley Birch plays Rachel. Uh, Amani plays Dana. So Rachel is kind of the more stereotypical short haired um, uh, lesbian character of the two testers. And, but she actually, she gets a lot more depth and backstory and she gets a lot more interaction with the other characters. I think it yeah. does. 
and and she's more extroverted. So there's a way and there's a way in which the show is kind of saying the way that she is like she much more open than, you know, Rachel is right with her own self and person. And it's hilarious to me that they call her the annoying tester. Like they, they don't even know her name. Yeah, you no, know. the annoying tester. No. Yeah. <laughs> so in the first season when she's doing that episode with C- the first episode she does with CW and she's trying to show him how to play the game and he makes something he makes a, a comment of like well, oh it's like I am Beowulf slaying Grindel and she's like oh what's what, what's Beowulf? What's Grindel? And he's like, well, you know, the the great epic poem of Beowulf, and she and he, she's like, didn't you read that in college? And she said, no, I was a women's studies major, and I was like, yeah. ooh, yeah. it feels like that's kind of a yeah. deep bird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like I said, there's a lot of really great stuff about generations in this in this show, um, yes. and the fact that uh, Joe and CW. In, in that favorite pandemic episode, have that whole scene where she's trying to help him to get on the computer properly. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's like total Generation Z and he is like not, right? He is, he is like baby boomer or, or, or the silent generation, right? Like they're as far apart as you can get on the show. And it's mm-hmm. just hilarious because there's, there's still good feeling between them, right? Um, but I mean, how many of us have had exactly that same interaction with our own parents, right? Yes. It, it's just like just turn it on don't stop hitting buttons <laughs> you've turned yourself into a panda which of course was that hilarious moment with that lawyer who oh yeah, with, it, the yeah cat. with the cat yeah which was one of the things that kind of keeps you alive during the pandemic right that this kind of stuff actually happens right yes. and it, it, it just it, that and watching Ilea's uh, squirrel videos kept me mm-hmm. afloat during the pandemic I don't know if you guys got to see her her uh yeah squirrel videos on Facebook where she was greasing up the squirrel pole. You know, it's like you count on these things, right? Yes. <laughs> so it was just, it was handled so well, the kind of generational gap between the two of them. I just think it's really interesting. Well, I also think like they did, um, I think they did a really great job of like the kind of workplace romance between Dana and Rachel feels very like nice and gradual and like pretty sweet. It doesn't feel super forced. Right, and I, I'm yeah, like, yeah, Lori, you need to jump in here because we're just gonna talk. All I know, over I, you, it I looks just, like. Yeah, I'm sorry, Lori. We're just like going on and on. Please interrupt us. Well, I I wanted to say about Dana and Rachel. I think they're Christina. I think they're specifically lesbians because the show, as a sitcom, like it's structured as a sitcom. It's a half an hour show. Yeah. It it as a a workplace sitcom it needed a workplace romance and in order to get away from the uh, gross gamergate yeah of it oh, all I see. Oh, so, yeah, they have okay. they have two queer women of color um even if dana can't speak thai uh they have two queer yeah. women of color fulfilling the like the jim and pam of it all okay. oh that's brilliant that so yeah what the show actually really needed was the workplace romance and and as you said they wanted to stay away from the dangers of the uh, right yeah and, yeah. and so they, they avoid they avoid what you think would be like the super obvious thing putting some form of sexual tension between Ian and poppy which would just be gross and they draw and gross. they make that, they make it they make that explicit say hey this yeah. is what you're expecting poppy is having sex dreams and yeah. everyone oh, God, so is like funny. oh no it's about power so yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. this is what I love about the, sh the show as, as like a television scholar, because that's what I do, is like, it takes all of these standard tropes, all of these expectations about the structure of a sitcom and turns it on its head and yeah. uses it against itself. Like even, right. even the, like you, you mentioned the moment with, with Joe and CW during the pandemic episode, they call back to that later in the se second season. And it's like when uh, CW's editor is trying to, you know, cancel his book, they, they yes. turn that, do you really want an 80 year old creepazoid with computer access Go, going out and doing, you know, so they basically blackmail his editor yes. into giving him what he wants, but it's because of the relationship that Joe and CW developed. Exactly. Well, yeah. And because CW knows he's totally inept at these things, right? Like he's going to yeah. say oriental and stuff like that because people in that generation do and they just don't get it, you know, uh, <laughs> right? They just, mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't compute, right? Um, and it, it's also really makes it that much more hilarious when she's just like, how are you a sci-fi writer and you don't know how to use a cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but can we talk specifically about Joe for a minute? Um, yeah, let, yes, let's do. Joe is <laughs> Joe is a glorious psychopath. And <laughs> you're so brilliant. That's great. A glorious psychopath. <laughs> I I love, I love her. her so much and I she's too. so horrible. Yeah, <laughs> I loved her in in season uh, one, episode ten. You know the big fight. She was brilliant in that episode. Oh, the you know Everlight. The 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 last episode where she was be the they did the fights. You know. Yeah, yeah the executioner. executioner. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh. That was that was a great episode too. Coming right on the heels of the pandemic. Yeah. Like collectively, like we have to pad out our our runtime our episode. Uh, load from Apple. So let's turn, let's ignore ongoing storylines entirely mm -hmm. and just live in in the game itself. Yeah, like it so good. Rebel in why people get into games, like the story yep. of it all, and then and then have Brad up from monetization be the yeah. embodiment of evil. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. So good. And, and so especially after that, because I love I mean, I fell in love with the show from episode nine, the pandemic episode. And then when they, they aired that that next episode, I couldn't believe how good it was. Yeah, I was just shocked. Yeah. And I like how much you get to see Joe kind of growing as a person. Yes. So she starts off as about kind of a cartoon of of this power hungry millennial sort of well she's a gen z i think I, I, oh I, yeah because yeah. uh that's why she can't work on the grumpy goat mobile app because she doesn't have the stink of millennial on her yeah right, right. Uh, as yeah. as brad said and i think one of the things that you get with joe that like the little pieces of what you get for her is that she seems like she's probably someone who like Everybody else in the show, not that they're like, we're super liberal, but like Joe is like, I'm very white and conservative from middle America. Yeah. Like, that's kind of like, that's her moment. Um, and like the Reagan the, photo. Yeah. The yeah she has a Reagan portrait um, yeah. hanging up in her, at her home during the pandemic episode. And with all you, the liquor in front of it, that was also funny. I, yeah. I noticed so, that. And because she has, and 
And, you know, there's probably a lot of, like, her backstory that we don't really know yet, but I would speculate of, like, maybe she came from maybe, like, a home with, you know, a really, 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 really strong father figure in it. And so she just really... And so this idea of, like, oh, you just gotta, like, fall in with whoever has the most power. Yes, yeah. Um, And that, you know, there we're constantly finding out things like, oh, you were were the bully. You were the bully in this situation. Mm -hmm. Because she, like, released... She, like... you know, tells a 14 year old to go kill himself, um, all this kind of stuff. And she's like, Oh yeah, exactly. And you know, kind mm-hmm. of this way, I was like, no, no, you're not allowed to tell people to go kill themselves. Yeah. Anymore. Right. Right. Can't right. Do that. Yeah. And she yeah. does learn. She grow. She does grow through the two seasons. I think that's well, an apt point. And I think, but she has to hit an absolute low, right? Mm-hmm. She thinks she also thinks she is because she's learned to be ruthless. She also thinks that she's clever Yes. And she was ruthless without being clever. And I guess we could say you shouldn't be so ruthless, but you really shouldn't be that ruthless without also being very clever. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think it just shows she's still very, very naive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lori, Lori, did you have more uh, to say about uh, Joe? Yeah. Uh, I, I think Joe's naivete is... And it's balanced really interestingly on the show with um, Sue, who is the community engagement yes. staff member who is yes. so cheerful all the time oh, that they, oh. they abandon her in the basement. But Sue has a lot of the same sort of character markers that that Joe does, like the Midwestern accent. She's got her, her cross around her neck. She's wearing the same kind of cardigans all the time. Um, and and on the surface, she would have a similar sort of cultural naivete like Joe does. But Sue is much more aware of what's going on. And it's it's she people think they're taking advantage of her where she's just yes. she's allowing people to do what they need to do. And she's dealing with it. But it's it's almost like a. Uh, a mirror image of Joe. Maybe Joe can one day grow into somebody like Sue and be locked in a basement of her own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's that's interesting. Um, were you at all offended by her being the sort of Christian character, either of you? No, because here's the thing. To me, because the other characters can have such negative qualities, the fact that they're like, oh, she's a little weird. I'm like, okay, I'm fine with that. Like, if Brad's like, oh, she's weird. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with Brad thinking that I'm, I would be the weird one, right? Yeah. Like, yes. I think that actually is a better fit. Um, and I think, I think she. And it is to- interesting. They don't show her as a mom, and she is, after all, working, right? Mm-hmm. So she's not typically evangelical. Like, remember that line where she says something about like. Well, why would the, their parents are not obviously parenting their kids? You know, I remember thinking. Yes, again, also, yeah, in the pandemic yeah. episode, because they were like, all the parents want the parental locks taken off. Yeah, yeah. Their children can play as much as they want. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking, it's interesting that she, they have, she's at work, you know, um, we don't know if she has kids or not, or what's going on with that. But um, so my opinion, now that I, I have a one-year-old who, you know, turned one like three days ago, anybody who's like, I can't believe that parents need space from their kids. Oh my gosh. Don't they want, they should have had kids. Like you have never had children. Yeah. You think that would make you. Yeah. Like only people who have like, had well, them You should just be that. stuck with your children for like days and days and days and days and days. And you shouldn't complain. And you should yeah. have like, 
you've never been around children. You don't have any. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I think, so, oh, what about, uh, we talked a little bit about Carol. Um, anything yes, that, let's talk I, more about Carol. We love Carol. So I love that, like, I love that for, that she seems like it's such a, like a down to earth HR person. Cause, um, that she's just kind of like, Hey, you should be talking about this, but you know what? You having a relationship with someone at work, not actually against HR issues. Just don't have sex at work. Yeah, I, I love that she's constantly trying to do her job and all of these idiots around her are, are, are taking advantage of her and treating her like a therapist. And like the way that she <laughs> unwinds in that Everlight episode where she's, oh, yeah. where with, she's with, the mermaid. She's mermaid and just and drinking sangria. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like, laughed so hard. Man, Carol's inner world must be so great like you get the glimpse of her her real life like she may be at work dealing with these these idiots but she's got a real life at home like you get the sense that she shuts off work and she has this full a full inner life and a full world around her with her family and she just has to deal with doofuses and i love her so much she's so funny yeah she's so funny and that point you make is really good because part of the gaming culture but also part of a commercial culture corporate culture is this you're working all of the time thing right like copies always work they're always working gotta get better gotta do that and all of them in the office are like that except for her and yeah, it made me respect her character so much more because it's like, yeah, she's a full bodied person. She's not going to be defined by this. She's like, get out no. of here. Don't tell me about this. I don't want to know about that. You know? Yes. Well, and that she's like, oh, well, you sure as hell like uh, creeped up on me and confronted me with no problem. And oh, you're feeling microaggressed. I'm sorry. I'm meant to be macro aggressing you right now. Uh, <laughs> Which are things that you probably could actually get away with saying in real life, but I love them because I want to say them at yeah. work sometimes too. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes they treat Carol in the same way that they like treat the art department, which I always felt, I felt bad oh, for the art so department because they're clearly so talented. And like people are like, whatever, like, ugh, like, ugh. And they're like the old, and I'm wondering, I don't know enough about kind of some of the gaming community and some, if like, if that's some sort of deep cut that like, oh, lots of game companies actually do treat their artists very poorly. I'm not sure. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case though, but yeah, the poor art department, they're just like, you could give us notes and then we wouldn't have, have, have to redo it. And they're like, no, no, you can just <laughs> st- stay up all night and just redo it to whatever I need and that'll be fine. And which I think shows part of Ian's personality that like the game is the most important thing to him, right? Yes. Yeah. The game, the quality of the game, even though he doesn't actually seem to play it, it's like the idea of the game. He, Cause he's not actually very mm-hmm. good at it. He doesn't play it. He doesn't go home and play it the way Dana does. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting that this, that this kind of ideal of the game and like the service he's providing that it's like cool is the most important thing to him. And that he kind of expects everyone to fo- follow along with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, uh, but I guess before we get into that, my question to y'all, to you ladies is, does the show's depiction of, like, gamer and nerd culture feel real to y'all, to, like, what you've experienced? 
doesn't feel like obviously there's some of it that's going to be over to the top but how does it mat like mesh with your perception of the reality of this world uh for me um because i may not be a gamer as such but i'm an extremely online person so uh the ethics in gaming i'm not allowed to swear uh thing hit really hard and uh I feel like the show was made by a bunch of people who sat through that, like, the, you know, the 2014 attacks on Anita Sarkeesian and her um, Feminist Frequency YouTube series about, hey, don't fridge your, your, your female characters in video games. And then people send her death threats. Uh, I feel like this show is made in direct response to that to say, you jerks don't get to own this. Let us show you what what is possible to present a specific version of gaming and gamers and streaming culture that still engages with that toxicity, but is not that toxicity mm. to like silence the haters. That's really well said. So I think especially like, if you had never watched somebody stream a video game, which you can do either on Twitch, uh, which is where you can do a lot more subscriptions, or you can obviously, a lot of streamers on YouTube as well. Like, Pootie Shoe, you're like, oh, there's no way that could, like, no, that that actually looks pretty accurate. Oh, no. No, it's super accurate. My son watched P the equivalent of Pootie Shoe for years. You know, he doesn't, he plays now, but he watched that because we wouldn't let him play. So he watched Pootie Shoe, the equivalent of Pootie Shoe. Some kid named Evan right who's in great britain making millions of dollars and controlling like everybody's view right it's yeah, just and, it's so yeah. real it's and, and then you like see the thing where he's like mom get out and he's like you know yeah. mom is a great employee yeah yeah like, oh yeah right which of course is you know these these kids are typically not doing that but that is in fact kind of what's happening is that they're the ones making the money right well and it's and it's kind of a weird thing because we find out later that Pootie Shoe, whose name I don't actually even remember the character's actual name. Brendan. Uh, what? Brendan. Brendan. He is, in fact, Ian's son. Yeah, that was a surprise. And, uh, you know, and we, we can maybe even, we can kind of maybe even jump to that, but like, you know, one of the things that the show talks about is that, like, they had created this amazing character called the, the Black Knight, nobody, or the Masked Man, and knowing. But, like, they created this cool character, but they hadn't finished writing it out, so they didn't know what to do with it. Like, well, maybe the White Knight can be his son. And they're like, oh, uh, that's kind of like what happened in Star Wars. But, like, as CW yeah. says, like, the relationship between father and son, parent and child, is is just inherent to the human condition. And we always feel like that there's, like, something at stake there. And it's kind of, and I, you know, you, they kind of really build Pudishu up to be this little you know, not great person um, that they call, and you know, they call him a, something on the show all the time. And then when you kind of meet him in his actual being Brendan, like you totally get how this kid is super screwed up. Like his dad, like he has a completely absentee father who seems to be paying for everything, but has no in real interest in being a dad at all. No ability to do that. And a mom who, you know, Hopefully is a better mom than what we see, but was kind of like, did you tell him that I was dating? Did you tell him that I'm seeing someone? Like, yeah. you haven't been with this guy in a decade. Why? What are you even talking about? Like, you know. 
Um, I I really loved uh, uh, Pootie Shoe uh, in the way that the show is breaking down like the PewDiePie kind of uh, stereotype. The that yeah. oh, that kid that kid that grown white supremacist. Um, it, it the, you you get all of the obnoxious. But then the show says, hey, look, this is a real person. This is a real kid. Now you care about him. And I think that's brilliant. And to make me feel emotionally invested in a, a teenage boy ugh, who ba- bases his judgments of the world on how many cat butts he can put. Yeah, buttholes. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. It, it's yeah, it's oh, it's a brilliant move, and I I think it's yeah. it's important for the show not just be, to to demonstrate how Ian is a narcissist, but it it takes mm. another layer of gaming culture and streaming culture and and humanizes it. Well, and That's the thing point. that is so odd is that like this inte- like this multi million dollar company that probably breaks in hundreds of millions of dollars from subscriptions every month is like, you have to know what this one rando 14 year old really thinks. Right. And then they're like jumping and cheering and you're like, Oh, you know, this is kind of weird. And and so I think in that sense, like nerd and gamer culture, like streamers really are real. <laughs> like for anyone who's like, I don't know, does this seem like, no, as they, no, they, they have a lot of, of power. They have a lot of power. They and do. like video games, if you're not if you're not someone who plays video games and you're just not a part of that world, it's it's bizarre how insular I think. And the the show mentioned this mentions this at the beginning of the first episode of the first season that like video games bring in more revenue than professional sports. Video yes, games bring yeah. in more revenue than all of television and all of movies. Yeah, but we don't consider industry. them to be equal in terms of like cultural relevance because like well i don't play video games so one i think that shows if we actually one that a lot of people are probably playing and don't admit it or that maybe they're like me or christina and they're like well we're playing like civilization we're maybe not playing this mmorpg but we're still like playing video games because it's it's this massive part of our culture and as he as ian says in his uh, little video that he created to himself like you know why shouldn't you know look at how many people are playing it look how much money it's bringing in why shouldn't why shouldn't creative directors be used in the same breath as like cameron spielberg nolan that kind of thing yeah let's go ahead and talk about that that question that you wanted to talk about about art versus you know gaming the commercial versus uh Uh you know because i think that's a really interesting question that the show is in some ways putting front and center by not talking about it, oddly enough, right? But uh, it's it's an an issue that's very interesting to me because I do think there's a ton of creativity in these games, and that all told, and part of this is just me, guilty parent, trying to justify the fact that my son plays a lot of time with these games, spends a lot of time with them, is that they it is better than just watching TV. You know, there's something uh, that's being demanded of of uh, the bl- the player of the game to solve problems, to do some things that's different, you know? Um, but particularly with the coders and the people who do that stuff, that's, that's amazing brilliance, you know? And, and it can feel a little bit like, 
oh, it's the sellout of the creatives going into advertising. But I actually think it's it's not as bad as the creatives all going to advertising. I, I think that that it's um, it's better than that. And and some of that has to do with storytelling and the power of of storytelling. And and that's why CW is such an interesting character to me. But there's a whole branch of literary criticism that deals with what they call the literary and the ludic, right? Like the games plus the literary and how they go together. Because it does come down to story and story possibilities that if you choose this one option, you don't get to do the other option. Do you remember when CW is like looking at the Pong game being played in the window? Yeah, and yet, yeah that's an important I have to moment. Say, that is one of the most beautiful shots. One that that's an amazing episode in general. And yeah, but the the shot of like how they have like the Pong reflected in his eyes, and he yeah. kind of has this truly like almost prophetic vision of like he sees the end result, and yes. he goes back and is like this is what, and there could be hundreds and thousands of different things. And they're making their, like, he, he sees that this is inevitably where it's going to go. And the thing that is kind of funny is like this editor, these other two writers that a lot of people are like, Oh, you're really a better writer than he, like, they don't see it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, yeah. you're science fiction authors who are like, that is too out there. Yeah. It's too out there. Um, which I think is really, really interesting. It's fascinating because he also sees in that moment the kind of, there was a a time in the 80s where there was like this choose-your-own-adventure type of novel that really, you guys are too young to remember these, but like it was before I saw it in the library. Yeah, okay, all right. right. But like before you had the gaming option of the storytelling, the story arc within a game, this was kind of like, the closest thing you could get to that. Like, mm-hmm. I, what if I wanted this ending? What if I did that and I got a different ending? You know, like it was the author letting contr- loose of control a little bit, you know? And isn't that what makes games really exciting is that, that you have a lot of control. And, um, right? Oh, exactly. And I think that, especially when you're having these really, these RPGs and the, I will I will say the only yes. one I ever really played, I've, I've played all of the iterations of Zelda um i'm not i've never been somebody who's been able to play like dark souls or sky because one i'm like oh that just i'm like i get really scared of dying uh-huh. <laughs> like, oh that's that's gonna hurt I don't but it there's so much that you can do and part of the fun of those games is doing whatever the heck you want that like you yes. can come back to the story if you want but like actually i just want to like like if i'm playing zelda like i just want to do all these side quests for a while Mm-hmm, and that they're mm-hmm. and that they're you're reaching into the game and it keeps giving you more and it keeps giving you more. That that's incredibly compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, because how often do we actually get to feel heroic in our own lives, especially if we're like I'm sitting at a desk and you know you're a teenage boy who's you know you you want to do something heroic, you want to go run around and kill stuff and use aggression and like nope nope you got to sit quietly. Mm -hmm. Or you want to be creative and build things. And Minecraft's a huge deal. Like, Minecraft's a big deal. And that's a really creative game. I have a question. Okay. So, so as a kind of an outsider on games. Like, I play Sudoku. I play some Solitaire uh, on my phone. Um, I'm seeing a thread with the way that you guys are talking about the games that you really love and that resonate with you. And also can hear the 
the dismissive, um, yeah, I'm not a gamer kind of voice that just imagines Candy Crush and shoot 'em ups. So yeah, yeah, that that's all there is. Yeah. yeah. So how do we think the show is reconciling the the ways that these narratives that you can build the same the same thing that draws people to Dungeons and Dragons the same that that just creating a world around you is is very attractive. How do you j- balance that with the pew pew and uh, <laughs> money money? Like, what do you think the show is saying? I, I know where Brad falls on the Candy Crush. But yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But, well, but what 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 is what is the show saying about it? It's a great question. I think that they kind of see like it's it's interesting because I think that the sh- the show seems to kind of, at least to me to be saying that there is some concession that is necessary mm-hmm. that you that you know Brad gets his casinos of games and chance and that I think the thing that at least makes it okay for some of these games is that. If I'm a player and I don't want to have to interact with that, I can. I never really have to go there, right? Like if it because something like that, it's it's a place where you could go if you wanted to. Like okay, maybe I'm gonna go gamble for some loot crates or something like that. But I don't necessarily have to interact with it if I don't want to. It's mm-hmm. not like the game's not forcing me to do that. Although um, you know, a lot of times this is what drives us crazy about our son, right? Like. The, you know, the, what you buy, these in-app purchases are always things like, get this weapon, you'll be this much better if you got, you know, and you have to pay for these things. That's why they make so much money, right? Um, so if you want to really do what you could win the game by not buying these power-ups and stuff, but you'll be some, it's paying for instant gratification, basically, right? Well, instant success. Instant gratification, and it's for like, especially... You don't get this for, for some of things like some of the Zelda games, but for some of the stuff for like um, Overwatch, for um, oh this one with all the stupid dancing that started people flossing. Fortnite. Uh, Fortnite, yes. Um, Wait, that started like, people a lot flossing. Of that is like you can buy different, as they call them, skins, right? That you can buy yeah. different. Uh, you can like oh well, I want this run really cool unique T-shirt that's going to put me like set me aside like you they also yeah they make a lot of money from some of that as well mm-hmm. so yeah i think it, it's odd because you know in there's anything that we really think of as art there's not really any art that i get to go see for free like i like even if i want to go to the museum i have to pay entrance fee to the museum to see yeah art. that's right right that's right um i have to i have to pay an entrance fee I have to pay a ticket fee if I'm going to go to the ballet or the opera, or I have to pay for my, you know, my downloaded Casey Musgraves uh, album. Like we, the only art that I'm ever going to consume for free is the stuff I am personally creating. Yeah. And I can't tell you ladies, that's not super great art. <laughs> not super great. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. So nobody should be paying for that at all. Um, and so I guess it makes sense that like, of course that like, I'm going to have to, like, I'm going to have to pay for that. Like I didn't get to see Dune for free. Right. I had to pay to see Dune and Dune was amazing. And it was, and I remember having a thought of like, this is beautiful. 
this is entertaining. And the thought of like, this is art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it was incredibly interesting. But I, I remember thinking like, this is art. Mm-hmm. And like we pay, I pay like the 25, like the 25 bucks a seat for like the rumble seats for mm-hmm. June. So that like, you know, when you're in like the, like the little thopters that it's like, you're like moving around and yeah. this vibrating, like, and it was so much more immersive. And so the art was actually better because <laughs> I paid mm-hmm. more money for it. So I had a better experience with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I guess, I mean, I think you think video games are a certain way, like you're going to, and you can experience it in a different way if you're willing to pay that money for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I want to complicate this with the dark, quiet death of it all. Yes. Okay. Yes. Carry on. Okay. Go so that Lori, uh, each, each season thus far has had one episode that's been a sort of interlude and the first seasons, the one we've referred to where it's a flashback to the nineties, um, Dark Quiet Death is the game that uh, the pair in that the couple in that episode developed together. You can't win, you can't fight, you just try to survive. A, essentially, a haunted house, um, and it's it got a lot of indie cred, and eventually, the same Montreal financiers who we see in the rest of Mythic Quest um, start paying money to make. Dark Quiet Death bigger and get it to a better, larger audience. And then the couple who are making it keep feeling pressured and pressured and pressured to make these changes to smooth out the complex uh, story that they want to tell and put the big fight is whether or not you can have a gun instead of a flashlight. And the episode ends, the couple has broken up because they disagreed and they drifted apart. They, and the the man, played by Jake Johnson, uh, he's so good in the role, and Christina Milotti plays the, the, um, the woman, uh, he has sold out so much that Dark Quiet Death is now represented by a lumpy space princess-looking cartoon on, on Cartoon Network, and it has no... Yeah, like Bozo or something yeah. like that, whatever his name is. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't remember because it's so innocuous and so just stupid. Um, but he's made millions of dollars and they made it into a movie of all things. And he starts dating the the, the, the woman who plays the lead. And it's kind of a joke about like Resident Evil. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And the show, why does the show tell us this? Why does the show introduce us to two passionate and principled people and then follow the guy who's willing to sell out and then cut right back at the end of the episode to mythic quest well an excellent point laurie i so i would say that i think that it is it is it is to show us a path that could have been taken for ian and uh uh for ian and Poppy, especially like um, towards the end when they're like, dang it, what are we gonna like? They they're really kind of creatively juiced, right, with the game. And as CW says, it's all grown up now. She's legal. Cause I just love CW so much because he's such a creeper. It's the best. Um, <laughs> and so like they they realize like we have to go on to something else. And I think that what they had like they were able to do that maybe this game was they're like, hey, 
we can't add anything to this game that we haven't already done. We need to move on to something else. They kept trying to have a more pure, more pure, more pure version of the same thing. If that makes sense. And so I guess maybe that's where I would say it might be some of the tie-in. It might be a little bit of a difference. Is I, I and Poppy were like, no, we actually have to walk away so that kind of thing doesn't happen to them. Mm -hmm. and, he, so, and, and Poppy does kind of fall in a little bit. She creates, uh, she codes a, um, essentially an arena so that they, so that they can have a, a Fortnite-style like battles against each other because that's a because that brings in eight-year-olds. Um, yeah, the battle royale. Yeah, so they kind of yeah. brought in a battle royale, and Poppy was kind of like, you could tell that she's like, I can't believe that I did this, but it did get her a lot of perks, right? She did give in, and like she didn't have to do like the corporate like personality HR thing. Right, mm -hmm. because corporate was so happy that they were she she had coded that and was bringing them in all this money. Mm -hmm. So, Lori, how do you answer your own question? I kind of want to wait and see what happens if there's a season three to find out if there's I'm supposed to be a season three. Yeah, it's it's a matter of uh, letting Rob McElhenney, Charlie Day, and Megan Gons get through with uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia before they can start thinking about this again. And uh, that show's never going to end um, ever. Uh, but I want to I want to know where they go. Like, how do they? Not just how do they make Poppy's new revolutionary vision of like the actual game mechanic that's fascinating. And the idea that Ian and Poppy would really be co-equals in this new one. I, I want to see how they figure out how they get financing, who they go to, how do they pay for this? Because video game development is expensive. Which so, is why you get so few really, really good small studios, right? Because yes, places like, um, like EA, which everybody is, it's, you know, lots of people really dislike EA games. Um, it's kind of almost like the Disney in that it's kind of like this big bad that owns a lot of properties. Um, like, it, it's incredibly expensive. And so you have a lot of other stuff that I think is really, really, to me, really, really fascinating that, yeah, like, what do you do with this? Because we've seen what can happen when... It gets to when it does become too commercial. Like there, there's nothing of the original left. Yeah. So I, this is this is I I'm playing devil's advocate, but I I I have to wait until they figure out the story that they want to tell through the TV show. But I really want. I'm I'm personally obsessed with industrial concerns about like both making of television, but the way it's it the the game the creation of of art at a mass level, like how an industry builds itself. So I want to know: Are Ian and Poppy going the indie route, or are they going to like follow the money again? And if they go the indie route, how are they going to afford that? Because they're both very, very talented. And Ian has become accustomed to a certain lifestyle. And I cannot see him yeah. <laughs> live in a hot tub, right? With <laughs> right. He's, he oh, is not going to do well on an independent No, he budget. is not. So Correct. my thought on that is that, like, when you see him kind of pitching Mythic Quest at the end of that Dark Quiet Death episode, and they're like, hmm, okay. I think what I think what the thing is that Montreal is signing on for is not necessarily game con concept. They're signing on 
for passionate creators. And like Ian has that passion. And so I think he'd be able to take that. You think he'd be able to take that someplace else, but then there'd also be the concern of like, he's also a super known commodity now. And people are like, oh yeah, I know he's kind of a nut job. Like we don't need that drama. Like you probably bring in a lot of money, but that's a, that's a nut job to have to deal with, which would be true. Yes. So that you just made me think of, of the uh, Jean-Luc and, and Jacques a little bit differently because it, I think in my head, they, they've been the unseen villains, but uh, you've just made me look at them in a, in a new light. Thank you. I, I had not considered that they're, they're not just, you know, interested in how they can profit off of this massive revenue stream. But the, the fact that, Montreal took a chance both on Dark Quiet Death and Mythic Quest and then followed the money to yeah, Bozo. Like, but yeah, they're not the villains, Laurie. Yes, I love it when we can make a... So I guess, so we've talked a little bit about like our video games art. Who is, so if we're gonna, if we're, to, okay, we're talking about art. I'm just like art in quotation marks, right? Who Who is the artist in the show? Because I would actually argue that it's not Ian. Because Ian, I would say, is more of, maybe he's more like Homer, right? Like, the Homer, not Homer Simpson. I mean, he is an inept dad. But the Homer, the Homer, <laughs> that, because he's the storyteller, right? He's the one that creates the story. Whereas Poppy is the one who's, act, you know, as they keep saying, Ian's saying, like, you're the paint, you know, she's like, well, I'm used to your paintbrush. And she's like, no. I was like, no, you're the painter, and I'm telling you what I'm seeing, right? So who who is, like, the real artist in this? I think they both are. I I think they're both artists. I mean, she probably is more so. Um, but I, I think they're doing a lot with the, the duality, that they're better together and that they don't, you know, and that is what makes it interesting is that it's not this isolated genius, right? They need each other. They do, yeah. and I think it's an excellent it's an excellent thing of like art need for art to be great, it needs constriction. Art that has one hundred percent free reign mm-hmm. to do whatever it wants and to be provided with whatever money or an in or a infinite page count or you know mm-hmm. as much square footage on that canvas, that is rarely very good art. Like, mm-hmm. Art needs restriction, and the restriction in this is, you know, they probably get as much, they probably can fundraise a lot of money, but the restriction is the creative differences and respect that they truly have for each other bouncing off of each other and making each other better. Because as we, I think sometimes, I think it is probably best if you're going to watch the second season, you probably really want to kind of rewatch some of the first season because the second season is then mostly at odds with each other for almost the entirety, except the very last episode. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think you kind of need to, I think one, you need like the Everlight episode before that and like them getting along a little more in the first season to really show that there really is, like they really were good together and there really is something at stake to be lost. Yeah. Uh, because we kind of get them towards the end, like they're finishing up their great grand masterpiece, which is Raven's Banquet. And then they're kind of, and then that's where a lot of their stuff comes from is they're feeling kind of completely creatively juiced and empty. And that 
I think if you that that you being able to be creative, like you need to be able to move on to something else, right? And not just kind of keep endlessly digging in the same hole, which is I I think probably what happens with Dark Quiet Death that you know by the third game or whatever that they were wanting to do, like you know what y'all you're kind of just digging endlessly in the same thing, and you should probably move that creativity to something else, right? Yeah, hmm. it's it becomes a form of navel gazing. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, which I th- I so I keep coming back to um, Poppy as like a plastic artist, you know, like mediums and, and paint and sculpture, the the plastic arts, and and I and sees himself as a storyteller. That's why he reached out to CW. It's less that Ian can create a video game than he has a particular type of story he he want he needs to tell and the best medium is video game. But video games are an intensely collaborative process. So the, the show suggests that he plucks Poppy out of MIT partially because he thinks he can manipulate her and, and play power games and be in charge and be in control. But what the show reveals is that he, he needs her. And like you said, she has no imposter syndrome. So she's in a lot of ways resistant to his narcissism. But I think it's really interesting that he as a character can only create in a medium that demands he work with someone else to do it. That is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He's not writing, you know, he comes up with helps come up with these great stories and these great ideas, but he's not like writing a novel himself. Right. He need like, he needs CW for the story and he needs Poppy mm-hmm. for the design. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting uh we're getting a little on in our time. I guess one thing before we go on before one of our planned questions, which is we keep talking we've talked about CW a lot. Do we want to just kind of open it up for him like a little bit before we do our other last question? Do you mean do we do we need to talk about um I don't want to step on it. I don't want to take the joy away from you and jazz hands deal, but I think we need Backstory. to do it. Backstory. Backstory. Dinner party. Dinner party. Backstory. <laughs> yeah. So, what do we think of? I guess the because we get two CW centric episodes, which I guess are maybe to make up for the fact that they really didn't want him on set for a little while because of all the COVID stuff. So the so they kind of yeah. gave him these two. So he he basically has one two episodes where he's actually physically there. And one episode that's a very, 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 very small cast, right? Mm-hmm. That he's not actually having. But it was so brilliant when they had him, his, you know, projected his head up on and put it on that. Um, yeah. You know, no, that was so funny. So they used it very well that he wasn't mm-hmm. actually physically in the office, you know. But what do, what do we think of? I guess the two CW episodes. One of how he wins his um, not Saturn. I call it a Saturn. The Nebula. The Nebula award winning. That he's kind of like, he's kind of a weirdo. Like, you know, his peers are kind yeah. of better than he is. And the one, and I forget the, the female writer's name, but she is clearly shown to be just an absolutely excellent writer to be considered the equivalency 
of Ursula K. Le Guin, right? Yeah. Well, and, um, and also, can I just ask you guys, I mean, are we supposed to believe that CW actually the won the nebula because uh, Asimov had given him so many red notes on his novel that he wrote what Asimov wrote? I think you were supposed to yeah. believe that Isaac Asimov won the nebula. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's what I thought, too. I just well, checked. And, like, and, and so, one, like, Christina, is that plagiarism? You're a professor. Is that plagiarism? <laughs> well, I, I think so. Because, I mean, the, the, it's unrealistic, though, right? Because he wrote so much right over the, the top of it that nobody well, would ever do that, right? So. Well, yeah, Asimov did not have much going on uh, for a couple of yeah. days. I yeah. Think, so one of the things you get in that is that, like, I think before then we're like, oh, yeah, but he had some great stuff. He, well, maybe he's just being misunderstood because this is how I was feeling because I have such a soft spot for the character that, like, well, he's a weirdo, but he won this award. He must on like down underneath be this really amazing writer. And like, I was really feeling for CW the whole time being like, well, they're just not understanding his work. Like, because I had all this history with him from the, the first and previous episode, the first season and previous episodes of that season. Right. Yeah. And so he gives it to him, and I'm like, and he, I'm like there with feeling there with the character where like, oh, he's gonna have have like a couple of notes, but be like, hey, this was a really great idea, and do stuff like this. And when you see all of the red, like I really was almost feeling the horror that the character mm-hmm. himself must be feeling of like, oh, like there's a realization of like, oh, he's not very good. Oh, yeah, man. His ideas were horrible. Like, when they were talking about his initial ideas, you're just the like, terrors, oh, that's the, oh. the terrors of the Anaheim. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah, that yeah. Isomoff note reveal was brutal. Oh, it really was. But it makes yeah. you feel, that, like, the, the episode does present, um, what's his name, Charles, uh, instead of CW at the time, uh, present him as as kind of a weirdo and and willing to to take things personally and and perceiving slights that are maybe not there like then you you see that just his his hero guts him at like just rips his legs out from under him but in a way that doesn't draw attention no like doesn't call him out in front of other people and right it's the pewdie, it's it's the the pooty shoes again. Like it take they take a plagiarist a, a hack and make you love him and make you care about him. It's amazing. Well, and and the other thing that ha- that happens with that is like I he continues to write and he gets all these other books published that like we are that seem to be from at least the first series. Like they'll talk about like oh my gosh that was amazing that backstory like. And they're like, yeah, you wrote that. And he's like, oh, I did? So, like, there's something there, but it's like he has to get out of his own way for it to really make it happen. Mm, that's and interesting. I th- and when you have the second episode where he's like, I'm going to stick it to the widower, I think the thing the thing that I loved at the end of all of that, which was, was a brutal episode to watch for both, because uh, you what these two amazing older actors just, like, chewing scenery because they were just doing such a good job oh yeah yeah and the widow or the widower when he figured like when cw figures out like oh they were only publishing her him you because of her right why aren't they publishing your last book huh like he figures it out and then when he goes back and he's like read it to me because you know what cw is actually a fan like the widower 
he writes trash science fiction that's like that as Rachel says is like kind of sexist and but like it still made her cry that you know CW was a fan and he admits that he's like I may have been jealous I may have been angry but I have always been a fan yeah he's a reader of yep and like There's there's just something about of like that tra- you know when you are love a genre so much that you're like yep I read that trash of it and it's fine and I love it and you have that deep love like I don't know there's just there's something that always feels really special about that yeah there was something it was really redemptive wasn't it because it's like genre fiction has its place right truly just plain like not Ursula Le Guin writing science fiction just a typical run of the mill sci fi writer right. Yeah, well, and in the same way that, like, I the same pitch that I made when we were doing the Bridgerton episode, like, just regular romance novels have an appropriate place. And just because something is in Pride and Prejudice doesn't mean that it is a value, that a romance novel can't have value. Right. And I think people get different things out of different, yeah. Yeah. And just because a novel, a science fiction novel isn't Dune, yeah, or isn't foundation, you know, the foundation series doesn't mean that it also can't have value. Exactly. Which, and I mean, I think it's a similar argument to what we're saying about video games, right? Yeah. Like they're not a, they're not novels, they're, but they're creative and they play a role. There's there's stuff going on there that you know is interesting and uh, important to a lot of people. So I I feel like that kind of takes us into I guess the last question I was really thinking of is. And we were already talking about the episode backstory, but what does the show tell us? What does the actual show try to tell us about not just the nature of storytelling in games, but about for these characters, like the nature of why do we need a backstory for our heroes, for our villains? What 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 does that do for us once we know more about them? Once we have these extra CW episodes, or we we get the brutal thing of like I am just being completely rejected by his son. You know, what What are those mm-hmm. things? Or that we know, like, oh, Brad's actually the nice brother. <laughs> okay, so, uh, Sarah, don't hate me. I'm, I have to admit, I'm a huge football fan. So what I'm about to say, I'm a little prejudiced. But I think this is okay. where the show and Ted Lasso are the same. Okay. Tell, okay. okay, tell me. Because at the heart of all of this is empathy. It wants the show Mythic Quest wants yes. you to empathize with people that you wouldn't normally take tropes that you expect to be derided and then say, no, there is depth here. There is meaning here. Just like people dismiss video games, there is depth and meaning and purpose and beauty and you have to look at it. So it, the show is trying to, to teach us to be better people. I I would 100% agree with that. Um, that there that there is a lot of empathy here that gets displayed in a lot of ways. That you you feel empathy. You know, you Joe is a horrible b i c t h for most of the show to everyone, but she has these little moments. And then when she thinks she realizes that, like, oh, she didn't actually outsmart anyone and that she actually still has this naivete, like, you feel for her, right? And you feel for Brad in these moments when he kind of helps people but also is trying, like, he tries to help people and help himself at the exact same time. Um, 
And so, yeah, he takes the fall for Joe, but he also gets some street cred, but he probably still wouldn't have done it if he didn't have a little sympathy for her. Like, and the same with CW. And the same, I think, even with our testers, Dana and Rachel, like, they're making these plans, they're going to go up to Berkeley, and then we found out, like, oh, Dana didn't actually get into programming school. Um, there's there's just so much, there's a lot of empathy for that. Um, and same with Ian, and I think I think the most empathy I have with Poppy is in that is in the is is in the pandemic episode because that's when we see her at her most broken because she's she's away from her family, she's thousands of miles away from her family, doesn't get to see them, and then, not that the show is exploring this, but you know Australia has really really like severe lockdowns, which is where her character is supposed to be from. So there's a very good chance that if this were all real, she might be ha- go like three or four years without being able to go see her parents, right? Um, and so there, there's a lot of meaning to that. That's, yeah, I think that the need for empathy in this medium is is very interesting. And that even when we have, uh, like, the, uh, the Nazis in the game episode, not that we're necessarily empathizing with the Nazis, but that, like... They're like they're still trying to find a way to like help everyone play the game, right? Which and the solution they have, I think, is pretty brilliant to isolate the the negative, like the haters on yeah, that was funny. Whereas that was you know, yeah, that I think it I think it really shows that there is a lot that can be done in in a genre in a way that you just don't expect TV and video games. Yes, very good. All right. Anything else y'all want to talk about or y'all want to uh, go to our moving on? I think I'm ready to move on. Or passing on, which always sounds like someone's going to die. But yes, or passing <laughs> on. <laughs> okay. We are passing on to you, dear listeners. All right, Christina, why don't you go first? Well, sure. Since we're talking about Apple TV um, and Ted Lasso is one of the things that I really love, I also want to recommend the morning show, uh, which I hope we will do uh, an episode on on the CFP at some point, because it's very fascinating with some of the same issues of, uh, you know, public um, TV show, uh, public personas, and a lot of the Me Too movement stuff gets in there. It's just a fascinating series and I really like it. All right, what about you, Lori? Um, I've touched on uh, this a little bit, so I'm gonna in, in our episode. So I'm going to give uh, a link to an interview with uh, cultural critic Anita Sar- Sarkeesian um, from the Rolling Stone back in 2014 at the height of the Gamergate. It gives a little bit of background, but it's also something that I think the show sort of expects you to to be aware of and is in direct conversation with, and it's uh, the article, the interviews, Anita Sarkeesian on Gamergate. We have a problem and we're going to fix it. So it's that that hopefulness that I, I wanted to share with people. Oh, excellent. I actually, halfway through the, the show, I was like, I'm switching what I'm going to put. And so I've switched from what was originally going to be animated to something that's still animated, but is a Netflix series called um, Arcane League of Legends. And so it's a video game based off of the backstory for the characters in League of Legends. 
And it is amazing. It is the most beautiful animated thing I've seen in years. It's what like DreamWorks would look like if DreamWorks still cared. It's really amazing. And I'll probably try to rope Christina and probably Lori into doing an episode about it with me next semester in the fall because it's just so great. But we've been talking about backstory. We've been talking about art. And this is this is art that is spawned from other art, which I think is always really interesting. So. That will be my recommendation. All right. Thank you, uh, dear listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or on our network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Laurie Norris and Christina Beaverlake, I'm Sarah Kluster. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the novel Rebecca. Ooh. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.